Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. Hello, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist, and your host. And on today's episode, I'm sharing a story from my childhood that shows how PTSD develops. There are themes in childhood trauma, though we all as survivors survived different kinds of moments and life experiences. This is a story that's tender to me, and the actual details of the story, the experience itself, will hopefully be unfamiliar to most of you, but the themes may resonate. Today, I'm sharing a story that highlights childhood trauma emotional immaturity, low to no empathy, manipulation, neglect, weaponized fear, nervous system dysregulation, parentification, overwhelm, terror, confusion, good intentions, and powerlessness. And I'm going to touch briefly on what potentially creates the Petri dish where DID, dissociative identity disorder, can emerge, and PTSD is learned or even taught. My personal timeline for ages 6 to 10 has always been wonky. No matter how many times I try to nail it down and write it out, it just shifts within my memory. I was dissociative very young. I was having night terrors. And those things only occur when we're having struggle. By this age, I had witnessed my biological parents being violent with each other, and my parents separated, and there was no real explanation. One day, we lived as a nuclear family. The next day, my mother and my sisters, my youngest sister just a few months old, we moved in with my grandparents. Now, I never went back to the family home to pack or to gather my things. I didn't get to say goodbye. Now, goodbyes are important, and they're often overlooked, especially for children. My biological father had built me a tall swing set. I thought of it as a sort of treehouse. Now, it wasn't really in a tree, but it was high up within the trees. So I thought of this as my treehouse. 
And I thought of it as proof that my father had loved and cared about me. This nuclear family moment seemed to burn into my psyche, so much so that when I earned my driver's license at about 16, one of the first places I drove myself was to that old nuclear family home. And I could see roughly a decade or more later that that treehouse was still there. That meant to me that other children had played on it. And I sat in my car and I wept for a very long time. I had to grow up and give myself a proper goodbye to that house and mostly the treehouse and my father. My parents had begun a War of the Roses type divorce, which was, in my own personal judgment, doubly stupid because they didn't have any assets to fight for, just custody over kids. They were young, very little assets, and truly neither parent wanted three kids, but neither wanted to lose custody to the other. I believe that my mother is sociopathic and every sociopath is also a narcissist. And I believe that my biological father was just simply narcissistic. For people with low insight, low maturity, and low empathy, which is what narcissism essentially is when you break down the elements that cook the cake of narcissism. With low insight, low maturity, and low empathy, people with those traits, they often want to win at all costs, even when they don't want the prize. Winning for the sake of winning. Winning for the sake of not being deemed the loser. Winning for the sake of rubbing it in the loser's face. Winning and righteousness are drugs often used by those with low insight, low maturity, and low empathy. For the sake of this story, the main difference between a narcissist and a sociopath is that the narcissist doesn't seem to have much of an ability to play a long manipulative game. They tend to be more moment to moment. The sociopath can play a very long chess game just to win. And when I moved in with my grandparents, I lived in Lakeview, Louisiana, and I attended Edward Hines Elementary School, and I loved this school. I had mostly lovely, reparenting energy, warm and encouraging teachers. They seemed to know that I was in struggle, seemed to sense that there was a problem with my mom or with the mothering, even if they didn't know quite what it was. I had school counselors back then because I had night terrors that terrified my mother. Rightly so. They're very, very scary to witness a small child waking up in full instant terror. It's terrifying. So I had school counselors who would pull me out of class and play pickup sticks and talk to me. And I look forward to them. I appreciated them. I knew they appreciated me. They helped me a lot. School had been the safest of places for me, an escape from stress, a place where I didn't have to be the adult and the adults took care of me. At a point in my parents' tumultuous seven-year drawn-out divorce, I was told by my mother that Papa, that's what we called him, had threatened to kidnap us, meaning that me as the eldest and my two younger siblings that our father wanted to kidnap us would take us to Italy. He is Italian and fluent, 
and I was told that he would leave us there and that we wouldn't know anyone. I wouldn't know what they were saying. They wouldn't know what I was saying. And we'd never see our mother, our grandparents, or our cousins or aunts or uncles ever again. This messaging to me started when I was in about second and third grade, about age eight and nine. The school I attended was about a mile or less away from my grandparents' house. Often I would get this abduction lecture about watching out for Papa. The story was that he would try to snatch us at school or coming or going from school. So the school was in on this. Every faculty member briefed that there was a kidnapping threat on me and just my middle sister who had started kindergarten. My mom would tell me it was my job to keep my sister and myself safe. That's a very common thing, especially in generations past, to have been told as an eldest sibling. To this day, I'm, I'm 50-50 and I have no way of ever knowing for sure. I don't know if those threats were real or master manipulated against my father so that my mother could win and look like the victim. But that could be an unfair assessment based on his behavior that I am aware of. I can see that he might have made this threat, though I can't really fathom in my gut him following through. I can't imagine that this was an actual real threat, but it may have been. I have this one memory of being on the playground, the schoolyard, and in my mind's eye, the schoolyard takes up an entire city block. And in this one strong memory, my entire class was running to the fence, just as schoolyard children do. And there's a very specific sound of children running, playing tag and hitting the fence. And I can hear that sound whenever I think of this memory. Because the entire class runs to the fence and makes that sound, and I stop short. And I stop far, far away from the fence in front of me. In my memory, I estimate that it's 20 to 30 feet away from the fence. And I'm wringing my hands, and I'm frantically scanning the street for scary white vans that may snatch me. I'm looking for a scary version of Papa, and internally feeling savagely torn. I yearned for my papa. I ached for him because he had been so much warmer than my mother, who remains one of the chilliest women I've ever met in my life. So papa felt better to me as a small child. This dynamic made me yearn for him because I had bonded to him as much as I could bond to any of my parents. And I was alone in that bonding. My sisters were young enough to where they hadn't really bonded with him. And therefore, they didn't really grieve him. They missed the idea of a father having a dad when other kids would talk about their dads, but they didn't grieve him the way that I had to grieve him. Now, standing there on that playground, frozen, it's an image I can't shake because that moment it embodies so much of what childhood trauma really is for me and so many of you listening, so many of you who have worked with me over the years. The teachers and faculty participated in this narrative that, oh, Nikki better stay far away from the fence just in case. So all the other children ran to the fence. Those other children were in flow. They were in play. They were being children. They were going along with life and fun. 
being silly. I, on the other hand, was paralyzed, glued to the ground in that spot. As a boundaries teacher, what strikes me is that the barrier, the boundary of the fence, it was there to keep bad things out of that schoolyard and to keep the goodness of children and safety in. And that barrier, that fence was unable to help me feel safe. And that is tragic. This is in part why I talk not just about physical boundaries, not just about boundaries with other people, but our own emotional boundaries inside of us. We have a right to learn how to feel safe inside of us. You see, most people assume that the trauma that has the longest lasting effects are the tangible abuses. And that is less true than what seems right. It seems to the average person, hell, it even seems to the survivors out there, that the moments of getting hit or beaten in physical abuse or being physically sexually violated hold the most trauma. But a very difficult truth for all of us to consider is that this is somehow less impactful than the moments when direct abuse isn't actually happening. You see me on that playground, frozen. I had accepted all the fear into my body that my body could possibly hold. I thought that was right and wise and smart and protective and what the adults guided me to do with the best of intentions. That fear was exactly right for me to feel. But tremendous fear had come to reside inside of me. I didn't know how to get coping strategies and no one gave me coping strategies for the amount of fear that my system was under. School counselors played with me and helped me feel seen and special. Very good things and things that I needed. But I didn't get any actual coping or guidance. In dysfunctional families, the effects are nuanced because we live within these dynamics every single day of our lives. That's so very different than a stranger assault. That's so very different than having a one-year period of a really awful, terrible, manipulative boss. The effects are nuanced, and the traumatic impact sits in moments of emotional neglect more so than in many of the moments of actual abuse in the way that we typically think of it. Because abuse moments... Getting hit, y'all, they're time limited. They start and they end. Being taught to be in constant fear has no finish point. Being in overwhelm and confusion has no finish point. No point of settling, of ease, of peace. It's a constant for the nervous system. It's a constant weight on the mind. And that weight takes a child out of the freedom to explore with wonder. That is so natural for a developing mind. Once a child integrates unsafety and fear into their minds and bodies, they have no choice but to live overstimulated, hypervigilant, to feel terror inside of the body, And to feel and be powerless to change any of it. 
And that is so often what wreaks havoc on a developing nervous system. Now, any adult who was on that playground or walking by would just see a little girl on the playground. Yeah, she's playing with kids. She's fine. What irks me about this entire dynamic within this memory, for me and for anyone that I've ever known that has grown up with a dysfunctional family, is that later I would get the mental health diagnoses. I would get the depression stigma, the PTSD stigma, the anxiety disorder stigma. But one of the main symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder is being hypervigilant. Can you see that I was taught absolutely directly and intentionally that being hypervigilant was the right thing to do and to be and to feel? But later, this is a mental health criteria diagnosis that makes me the sick one. This is part of why I teach so much unlearning with my clients and over this microphone. There is so much for us to unlearn that as creatures who learn so easily and so willingly and so naturally, especially as highly sensitive children, that there is so much for us to unlearn while we learn new healthy things, coping, ways of being, how to soothe ourselves, how to bolster our self-worth, how to let go of perfectionism and the not good enough. This is also why medication, in my opinion, offers limited relief from our mental and emotional struggles. There's no medication that could teach my mind how to stop being hypervigilant. No medication started my mind being hypervigilant. It was a teaching. So what has helped me heal my hypervigilance is to teach my body to let go of that, to teach my body to be in a different state, to allow it, to give permission, to invite it, and to practice it. We are all tasked with unlearning in so many different ways, whether we have trauma or not in this lifetime, while learning new ways. Here's where the low empathy parenting really impacts. I'd experienced what felt like a three-day terror binge of fear. My mom telling me that, oh, he threatened again to kidnap us. So the fear would amp up and I had to keep us safe. It was my responsibility to keep me and my sister safe. Then a day or two later, my mom wouldn't feel like driving us to or from school. And she'd tell me to walk me and my sister, and I would. That's really what low empathy for another person allows. That she could give me that fear and then send me on my way to walk right into it. I remember walking to the school with maximum hypervigilance. Hypervigilance made me a protector. It gave me a role. It gave me an identity. It made me a good big sister. And I had to be ready to be tough if I saw Papa because he wanted to hurt us. Someone recently, a listener of the show, reached out to ask me to talk more about DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, which is still a controversial diagnosis. And I am conceptualizing an episode on this topic, but what I can say about it here is that DID, which I do believe in, it's the splitting of the psyche. And we split while we are experiencing tremendous trauma. I suspect more than trauma that betrayal must be a part of DID developing. I have worked with many others who have had this sort of splitting off, and it's very rare 
but this also may be the next hot psych diagnosis craze. So tread lightly right now if someone tells you you have DID and look for a future episode where I explore that more. But in that moment, I could feel my psyche splitting. And I've only felt that two times in my life. This time was when I was a child, when this fear of being abducted was heightened. It was the torn feeling inside of me that created that splitting feeling. And no, I don't believe I ever fit criteria for full dissociative identity disorder. I do believe similar trauma survivors have aspects of all of these different things that mental health tries to really nail down in a neatly tied up box with a little bow. And I don't think a lot of our mental health unfolds and unravels like that. It's a feeling inside of the body of being torn. It's almost indescribable unless you felt utterly violated and betrayed by someone who was supposed to take care of you. It's a feeling like oil and water just being unable to mix. A feeling of the heart ripping in two because it can't go in both directions of I love my papa and I have to protect myself from my papa. The psyche cannot deal with that. So the psyche as a self-protecting mechanism may be similar to how our computers go into sleep mode to conserve energy where the computer is still on, but it's not really all there. It's not functioning. Our psyches will do this for us, not to us, for us. So some of you may have felt a similar tornness, a slight splitting of the psyche. That young age, our elementary school ages, are so precious because we are so spongy. I could convince a young child that they're an alien or that the right way to eat is with our feet and everyone else is doing it wrong. All parents in a child's eye are superheroes. We can't know till we're older if our parents were really superheroes or supervillains, some of us. And as children, our parents, they encompass the child's entire world, the entire world. That's not just something that I'm saying. Really think about that. A child has no concept of a world beyond their parents. Parents are gods. What they say goes. What they say is truth. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about pivotal moments in history? If so, then try my new podcast, Calm History. It's a time machine of tranquility filled with immersive and fascinating stories from history. Prior episodes include The Pilgrims, Marco Polo, Henry Ford, Joan of Arc, Jackie Robinson, Klondike Gold Rush, Ancient Greek Olympics, Easter Island, and the Great Pyramid of Giza. There's also a six-part series about the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. With no warmth or safety from my mother and the addition of a confused terror where there had once been 
the most safety and security for me with my father left me fundamentally fractured externally and fundamentally fractured internally. I could feel myself within my memory. I can feel this today that there was a potential, a starting of splitting off. And what I believe to be true today is that it was my teachers that really saved me from fully splitting off and developing dissociative identity because I could feel my teachers caring for me, particularly Mrs. Camus with her white blonde hair and soft, round, huggable body. And like a divine intervention, I was tested for a program that was a pilot program in Louisiana, in New Orleans, and it gave me a much smaller classroom where teachers could give me individualized attention, and I believe that that saved my life. If you struggle with dissociation, if you wonder if you have some symptoms of dissociative identity disorder, I want you to know that I have worked with so many people over the years where those parts integrate. We can go from split to yoked, and yoked just means to bring together, which happens to be the definition of the word yoga. And yes, in many ways, yoga showed my brain how to hold space for a body that it had been disconnected from for much of its life. If you are a survivor of trauma, yoga, the physical practice of it, will teach you sort of how to come home to this body that was never meant to feel foreign. That is yours, and you can feel safe there, whole, integrated. With the story that I've shared from my childhood, can you imagine how my little body felt? How overwhelmed, how many thoughts swarmed around me constantly? How much pressure I felt? What do you think your little body felt growing up? Did you have different seasons in your life? What do you think those different seasons felt like for your little body, for your developing mind? When I look back at this memory of mine, I can see it so clearly. Right, wrong, or otherwise, I was taught terror. I was taught to feel that what had once been safe could all of a sudden be unsafe. I received this kind of fear-based abduction message over and over and over again. How many times do you think I received a comparable coping strategy for dealing with fear? I don't know if, if I received any despite being in with mental health workers all along the way. No one taught me self-defense, though I was being threatened with abduction. No one gave me a whistle to blow if I were to get grabbed. I believe therapists and adults who are with and who work with children are often scared to go there, often more scared of scaring or stressing the child than speaking to the core of what's going on in an age-appropriate way. HSB children, highly sensitive children, tend to benefit from more explanation Highly sensitive people and children, we are hungry. We feel a sense of peace when we get fed an explanation. It settles us. It calms us. If we can understand what's happening in the external world around us and the internal world around us, 
we can feel a sense of exhaling, of peace, of ease. Highly sensitive kids tend to have more insight, which means they have more thoughts, which means they can very easily have more worries, more questions, and they may not know how to articulate the questions that they feel floating around inside of them. Now, before you parents or you therapists out there who have perfectionism struggles, try to do this perfectly with your own children or if you work with children. I don't believe that there is any real way to tend to a traumatized kid anywhere near perfectly because all of these factors need to be balanced. That sometimes it's absolutely right to say nothing and just to play and just to be. And sometimes it's exactly right to name something directly. I believe that the fear of doing more damage to a traumatized child often means that an HSP child who is yearning for help but can't articulate winds up going, unfortunately, emotionally neglected, even if they are well-intended and well-intentioned people around, willing, able, and ready to help. Does the story that I shared from my own childhood today, does it help you see how easy it is for a child to develop overthinking, to become a grown-up who suffers from analysis paralysis? Imagine a moment if that had come to fruition, if I would have seen my papa at that young elementary school age of eight or nine or 10, part of me wanting to run and hug him to melt into his big, strong arms and feel his warmth that I wished for him to come get me sometimes. And another part of me primed to fight and scream and cry for my life. And this was at a time when my brain was learning how to be a human. Those thought processes of hypervigilance don't go away when the fear goes away, like we turn off a light switch. One day, the abduction story was just over and done with, and we were going to go over to Papa's house. And this time, he picked us up in the car. Do you think I enjoyed that visit? Do you think I was able to get outside of my head to let go of hypervigilance? How tired do you think that experience made my little body? Her excitement that she had to feel, her fear. How does one make sense of the pendulum swinging? Y'all hear me talk about the pendulum swinging a lot in a lot of different ways. But how does a little one make sense of the pendulum swinging from terror to safety? Is this part of where we learn that the pendulum swings and then we grow up and we swing it ourselves? How does a body go from fully on guard to chill, to present, to in ease and flow? I remember crying after one of these visits and my adult self can look around that memory as if I'm in the room of that memory and see that the adults, my mom and my grandparents did not understand my depth of feeling, my overwhelm. Even if they had been motivated to help me through those feelings, I can see that they didn't know how. They were, despite their love and care for me in their own ways, inadequate for the guidance that I needed, for the balm, B-A-L-M, that I needed after that fear. Don't be sad was the message that I heard the most. I'd be able to see my papa in a few weeks again, and sometimes that was true, and often he didn't show up. 
in this memory, I was crying out of exhaustion. As an adult, I used the term emotional hangover. That little kid version of me was emotionally wiped out, was fatigued, was crying in exhaustion of it all. The pain leaking out of me. Sadder each moment, my mom and grandparents couldn't help me articulate the depth of my confusion and the wideness of my feelings. It was like I had been allowed on a chaotic emotional roller coaster that I wasn't tall enough yet to ride. And it rattled me, it shook me up. On a deeper level, it's scary to go so unseen, to feel so unheld, so alien, to not understand the self, and to be surrounded by people who don't know how to help you understand yourself. When we're little, we can't go to the library. We can't even very effectively, till we're a certain age, even go to Google now, though I didn't have Google back then. I knew that my younger siblings, as an oldest sibling, didn't grieve for him, didn't feel a safety responsibility in their bodies. They didn't feel that for our lives because I did that job for them as well as for myself. They didn't have to feel scared. I felt scared for them. This is a certain amount of proof of what insight is, even when it isn't yet fully formed. Somehow, as a small child, I knew that I didn't want my sisters to be frightened. Now, often in my work, I say to people, we give away what we most need. What I'm sharing with you right now is in my history, a moment of that developing, that somehow I knew that I didn't want to be frightened, so I gave that away to them. I shielded them from fear and held it for them. This is often how the eldest child is parentified, learns to take on too much, learns that their purpose in life is as a caretaker of others instead of themselves. Even the adults who were the healthiest around me didn't seem to know that it would, it would have been good for them to take the job to hold those fears for me, that there was an option to empower me instead of terrifying me. This is where the parentification grows. What does the story that I'm sharing, what does this show you about yourself and your own development? What was your own body taught to feel? What was your mind taught to think? How much was it taught to think and feel? Is it okay to be affected even if the adults of your childhood were very well-intentioned? I can look back and see that the school faculty was very well-intentioned trying to keep me safe. And safe was the last thing I felt. They could care for me and they could get it wrong. Part of healing is being able to face those things, to face the powerlessness of those moments and to ultimately, not instantly, but to ultimately forgive the adults that were doing the best that they could. Just like we are tasked with forgiving ourselves as the adults that we are for our own imperfections, our own failings. I know that inner child work holds the most resistance and that it's vulnerable to lean into. When you hear my story in the way that I'm sharing it today, not thinking about your own story for a moment, can you see how important it has been in my development that I learned to embrace and hold and soothe my inner child 
my inner psyche that was so terrified and overwhelmed and had to be so adult when she could not have been that now I can take my power back. I can learn how to help her feel powerful instead of powerless. And by doing so, I continue to make peace with my childhood in such ways. And if I hadn't embraced that kind of soothing and continue to embrace that kind of soothing, if I don't embrace inner child work in this way, then what work heals this? How do you expect to heal if not by tending to this tender, tender part? So what I'm going to do right now to end is model what I would do after this episode with myself without any of you hearing me. You're invited to join me in any way that resonates, to repeat my language if it works for you, or to create your own. It will take seconds. And if you're joining me, remember that we're a tribe of overthinkers. So let's not overthink it. Let part of the healing, the exercise, the muscle that you're working be simplification. My hand is on my heart and my other is on my belly. Taking a deep breath. I love you, sweet girl. I'm so sorry you had to carry all of that. I want you to know that you are safe inside of me. That you will never feel so alone and frightened again. Because grown-up me will be with you always. And little you didn't have grown-up me back then. You get to have grown-up me all the days of our whole long life. Forever. Thank you for letting me share that story today. I love you so much. And now you can go play while I get back to work. And I will see you later. It can be as simple as that, y'all. And it makes us teary. It chokes us up from a little bit to a lot. Because that precious tender part of ourselves was underseen, undervalidated, and so lost in confusion for so long that in a moment with my hand on my heart talking to her, she cries as if to say, Oh my goodness, this is what I've always need. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for being willing to give me what I've always needed. She cries in relief because that is the healing that we have been craving. I'm a big believer that we grow, we heal, we evolve through story. Thank you for holding space for this part of my story today. Thank you for listening and opening up to the possibility of learning more about your own story. The more that we embrace the truth of our stories the more that we know exactly where our current growth edge is and we grow to learn how to give ourselves the very permission that we need to do the vulnerable work that will heal us, that will grow up our inner children so that they don't act up and act out and self-sabotage our lives so that we can learn how to feel truly peaceful internally, not some fake act of trying to be peaceful, but to actually feel the freedom of ease, the unification of mind and body, the integration of soul care, of learning what it really is to become a safe place to fall for ourselves, even 
if we grew up not experiencing a safe place to fall. I want to thank those of you who are on our Patreon. And I want to give you all some shout outs. We really cannot do the show without you. Thank you. Every single one of you, every single time you sign up on Patreon, you are voting to keep our show commercial free. That honors the healing spirit of the show. The way that I want to connect with you and hold space for you and with you. We couldn't do that without Patreon. Part of what you get when you sign up on our Patreon is you get a shout out any which way you want us to shout you out. So I want to thank Perry Ann, Ingvlid. I want to thank Jess, Vivian, Stephanie, Gretchen. Always get teary because there's so many of y'all on this list. I want to thank Sarah, Cassie, Grace, Catherine, Kaylee. L-E-I-G-H, Kaylee. I want to thank Deborah, Kim, Jenna, Lisa, Amanda, Kim, and Harleen. Those of you on Patreon, very, very soon, maybe before this episode is released even, we're going to announce something new for you on Patreon. Those of you who aren't on Patreon, you're going to have to find out in a few weeks. Okay, so look for that. That's, that's fun and I hope a little enticing. And I hope wherever you are on your healing seeker's path, that you take a moment today to see how very far you have already come. And I want you to know that tremendous healing is possible beyond what you might even allow yourself to imagine right now in this moment if you're in pain. And it is still available to you. Light and love, and I thank all of you for all you do to spread the show across the world. Y'all are our marketing team and have been that since the beginning. And I will see you right here next time. Or maybe I'll see you on Patreon if you jump on. I'm an emotional badass. You're an emotional badass. And together we are where Moxie meets Mindful. Bye-bye. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to Calm History dot com.